Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. time we'll dismiss our kiddos third grade and under. Uh, the McCabe's are in the back of the room in the Blue Redeemer kids shirts. So their kiddos are heading out as they go to study the scriptures themselves as we open the Bible for our sermon today. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 and 23 is where we're going to be today. And as you turn there, I just want to welcome those of you who are our guests. My name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're glad you've chosen to join us this morning. Uh, when you came in, you should have found a little card at a seat somewhere around you. Uh, it looks like this. On one side of that's a place for some information about yourself. The other side of that's a place for prayer requests. Not today. They didn't get passed out today. So if you can find one of those at the kiosk in the back of the room, if you'd like to submit a prayer request or if you'd like to leave us some information so we can contact you, we'd love to do that. You can also do that online. Uh, if you go to the homepage of our website, you can submit all that information there as well. Um, we promise we don't want to be intrusive, we just want to be able to uh, communicate with you, answer questions you have, or give you some information about who we are as a church. Uh, we continue, as Matt said earlier, in, in his prayer in this sermon series entitled Enough, looking at the sufficiency of Christ in everyday life. And this morning we come to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. I'll read it for our hearing today, and as I do, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a copy in front of you, you can follow along there. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes these words, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's Word. And I'd like to tag this text this morning with a title, Remaining Steadfast. Because after studying and meditating on this passage over the course of the last week, I believe that's the aim or the intention that God had whenever He inspired it, whenever Paul wrote it, and the reason it was preserved for us today. Remaining steadfast. Now you've probably heard uh, that the Christian life is a whole lot like a marathon and a whole less like a sprint. Okay, So it's not an initial burst out of the gate, but it is a long, enduring race. And over the course of the Christian life, we can all grow weary at times, can't we? Uh, We can grow weary in the world in which we live. We can grow weary of our own sin. We can grow weary of the headlines that we see around us. We can grow weary of the relational conflict or strife that we've been engaged in. Because of our Christian faith, we can all at times grow weary. And I believe the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, writes to us to remain steadfast. And in this particular text, I don't have a big introduction for you this morning, but in this particular text, I think there's one big idea. And then out of that big idea, I think there are going to come two practices for us. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning, is this big idea here in the passage, and then out of that, two practices that will help us 
as we seek to be faithful to what God has called us to. And the big idea in the passage, I believe, is this. Is that future presentation requires present perseverance. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. Future presentation requires present perseverance. In verse 22 in the passage, we are told that Jesus has reconciled us to God in His body of flesh. In other words, by His life and His death, He's reconciled us to God for a purpose. For a purpose, church. It tells us in order that. In other words, He's aiming to do something by reconciling us to God. He aims to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. Now, we're going to explore that more in a bit, but for now, let that sink in. Through Jesus' life and death, His aim was to present you before God fully sanctified, absolutely pure, all contaminants removed, reverse osmosified, okay? That's not a word, but it is this morning. And yet in verse 23, we're told that this presentation is conditioned on our perseverance because he writes in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word if in verse 23, the very first word is a conjunction. It's a connecting word. It's connecting two thoughts. It's connecting the thought in verse 22 with the thought that follows it in verse 23. And the thought in verse 22 is this future presentation before God in unassailable, indisputable, and watertight holiness that God, Jesus would present us to God in that capacity. The thought in verse 23 is present perseverance in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, but remaining steadfast in the hope of the gospel that they had heard, not moving on to another hope and another gospel that the false teachers in Colossae were circulating in their midst. So verse 22 sets before our eyes this glorious future presentation before God in absolute holiness. And verse 23 sets before our eyes our present perseverance in the faith. And in between those two thoughts is a connecting word, a conjunction. It's the word if. And it connects the thoughts in this way, I believe. The future presentation before God in absolute holiness will be your experience if, assuming that, you persevere in the present. Now, there are several clauses in verse 23 and the words following that word if that I think are worthy of our brief attention. The first one is the verb continue. In verse 23, the verb continue, we're going to get a little geeky this morning, okay? Do a little teaching this morning. In verse 23, the verb continue is a present active indicative. And what that means is this, is that, that, that continuing is something that you do. It's an active verb. You are engaged in this something that you're doing, and you're doing it presently, continuously, repeatedly, over the course of time. It's not a one-time thing. It's focused on your present reality, and it's indicative. It indicates a state that you are in currently. So you're actively in this state of continuing in the faith. Okay, that's what's going on. 
the faith, the faith with the definite article in, in the verse refers to the body of doctrine, the belief that I believe is passed down from the apostles. Right? This content, this body of knowledge that's been given to them. As opposed to what was coming from the false teachers. The word stable in verse 23. Listen to this. It's a perfect middle participle. I love grammar. I know you do too. Right? I love grammar. It's a perfect middle participle. That means, the word means to found or to lay the foundation. And it's a participle modifying the verb. Continue. Right? And so, which, which means this that it's describing something that happens to you as you continue in the faith. That you become stable. A foundation is laid for you. And that you're steadfast, which means to be firm or immovable and describes the type of foundation that's laid. So this foundation is one that is unshakable. It's immovable. And then Paul says, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel. Shifting refers to moving from one place to another place. In this instance, moving from one hope that's found in the Gospel to another hope that's found in another quote-unquote Gospel. Not the one that they had heard from Paul. So Paul says, put all this together, and Paul says, if you continue in the faith, remain steadfast, immovable, firm, having the stable foundation built in your life, not moving on from the hope of the Gospel, but moving more deeply into the hope of the Gospel, then you'll be presented before God as holy, blameless, and above reproach, which is the purpose for which Jesus reconciled you at the cross. See, Paul's focus here is not on past profession of faith, but present perseverance in faith. In the faith. Now, we're used to statements like this, okay? From our earliest, age, from our earliest of ages, right? We say to our kids, right, if you clean your room, then, right, you can go outside and play. Right? Or we may say to them, if you eat your vegetables, then you can have some ice cream. Okay? And sometimes the amount of ice cream is contingent upon the amount of vegetables that are eaten at the table. One scoop, two scoops, or three scoops. If you get good grades on your report card, right, then, right, this is at least when I was a kid, then you can have the car for the weekend. All right? So there's this incentive put out before us. These if-then statements, conditional statements. Each of these statements sets out a desirable future in front of us, and then it conditions that desirable future on our present performance. Now listen, for some of us right now, little bells and sirens are going off in our minds. Okay? Because we're, we, perhaps because we've become so accustomed to a gospel, which is really no gospel at all, that says... Hey, listen, all you have to do is make a profession of faith. All you have to do is walk the aisle, take the preacher's hand, say the prayer, get dunked in the tub. That's all you've got to do, right? And then you can live however you would like for the rest of your life. You can tip your cap to God, acknowledge Him at weddings and funerals, right? Very somber experiences. Thinking of Him on Christmas and Easter, right? He's born, He was died and resurrected, thanking Him on days like tomorrow, Memorial Day, for the veterans who've served in our country, or thanking Him on Fourth of July for the freedoms that we enjoy, or thanking Him at Thanksgiving, right? Who, who else are you going to thank at Thanksgiving? So we thank God, right, at Thanksgiving. But then you, go, you just can live however you would choose to live. 
No matter how you live, this past profession of faith is all that matters. That's what some would put forth as the Gospel. But Paul, here in the plain words of Scripture, says that final salvation is dependent upon present steadfastness. And I don't think we can soften the warnings to appease our consciences. The warnings are there in Scripture for a reason. And so the question is then, how do we understand them? How do we understand this if-then reality? There's at least three views on this. I want to give them to you briefly this morning, and I'll tell you which one I hold. Because that wouldn't be fair. First view says that it's possible for those who have truly been born again to fail to meet the condition, the if. And as a result, fail to be presented holy and blameless before God without reproach. The salvation they had once gained by their profession of faith is now lost as their faith has evaporated and dissolved. That's one view. I don't hold that view. Second, some read Colossians 1.23 and then other passages like it, these warning passages, and say that perseverance in faith is the proof that one's act of faith, profession of faith, was genuine and legitimate whenever it was made. So the, the, the faith, the, the perseverance, gives evidence to real faith operating in the person's life. And the contrary then would be true, that the failure to persevere in faith then gives evidence that it, that profession of faith, that act of faith, that walking the aisle, taking the hand, praying the prayer, getting dunked in the tub, that was not legitimate faith operating in that moment, but that person was perhaps self-deceived or self-deluded. Right, they would point to other passages like in the epistles of John to say that those who were once a part of us are no longer a part of us because they've gone out from us. And if they would have been a part of us, they would have really stayed with us. Okay, So there's this whole reality operating. And I believe that to be true, that those who are in Christ will persevere to the end. But I think there's a third view here that I think better fits. That some understand this passage and others like it, I think to indicate that God preserves us in faith and holiness of life by stirring our hearts to take advantage of His sustaining grace in the midst of our journey. And one way that He does this is by the warnings that are implicit in the condition. And the warning is this, simply, to no continuation, no presentation. In other words, God preserves us and keeps us safe, and thus we persevere. By heeding the warning that if we don't, we will not be presented blameless and without reproach before God. So the warning is real, church. And because it's real, God preserves and we persevere. We persevere in faith, availing ourselves of God's sustaining grace to preserve us as we walk this journey called the Christian life. Future presentation requires present perseverance. There's a real warning. But God sustains us if we are in Christ. Now, if we're to remain steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, if we're to actually walk forward in this then reality, then I think there's two practices we must engage in regularly, and they have to do with our before and after. Now, so at some point, 
right? Somebody in uh, much higher paying positions than I would ever aspire to had the genius idea for a marketing strategy of the before and the after, okay? So you've seen this in diet ads, haven't you? Okay, or workout marketing, okay? So they, every, every first, January 1, right? Here comes all the diet ads. Here comes all the workout marketing, right? All stuff's popping up on your Facebook feed and all across social media platforms and even on television. And they put some, you know, guy up there who is without his shirt on in a pair of gym shorts. Uh, and he, he, he's just really, really, really big, right? And they say, before, right? And then if you take these pills and you do these exercises, here's the after. And supposedly it's the same guy, right, in the same gym shorts, okay, but now he's like ripped, right? He looks like Hugh Jackman in the Wolverine movies, okay? He's just got rock hard abs and like this chest that just, just kind of flexes and everything bouncing, right? That's, that's what it looks like, right, before and after, or every time we come to lawn season, okay, you got all these products that roll out, right? You get this thin, emaciated-looking grass in your yard, okay? So here's the before, right? And if you use our grass seed, you use our fertilizer, you use our products, here's the after. It's this lush green field, which somehow is much bigger than the yard they showed before, right? It's this lush green field that you can walk on barefooted. Your children are frolicking. Your pet is rolling around, right, on the grass, Right? It's the before and it's the after. And listen, I'm going to tell you, these two practices have to do with our before and our after, if you're in Christ this morning. And the first one is this. Remember who you once were. Remember who you once were. That's the before. In verse 21, Paul says, in you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is who we once were. Even if you're in Christ this morning, there is a B.C. for you. A before Christ, a before Jesus, right? right the really big guy in the gym shorts who looks like he hadn't ever worked out in his life and he's eating nothing but french fries and potato chips okay the scrawny bare patch of yard that's the before we were alienated to be alienated means to be shut out of fellowship with someone when you're alienated you're cut off you're shut out like you're standing on the outside of the circle you know that experience humanly speaking whenever you walk into a room and there's a group of people who are all standing around talking and you slowly mosey on over okay it's a little old word you walk on over and you're standing maybe five feet and you're listening to the conversation but no one opens the circle to let you in you're standing on the outside looking in you're alienated cut off not a part of the ring. And listen, here we're not talking about being alienated from other people, but being alienated from God Himself. Cut off, shut out. And in our, listen, in our horizontal human relationships, we can sometimes be alienated on account of other people's attitudes, can't we? Or we can be alienated and cut off because of other people's prejudices or their biases or their partialities. 
And yet in this vertical divine relationship, I want to tell you something this morning, church. We are not alienated because God is prejudiced. We're not alienated because God is biased. We're not alienated because God is partial. We're alienated because of our sin. Paul says we're hostile in mind. We were hostile in mind. This means that we were actively thinking thoughts that were in opposition to God. It means our mental energy went toward devising schemes to rebel against God. That our disposition was one of hostility towards Him. We have it in our minds that He is our enemy and our intention is to rebel against Him. And the outcome of that mental energy and that disposition is that we do evil deeds. We're cut off from God thinking about how to rebel against Him. Not because He's biased, but because we're sinful and we're devising schemes to put ourselves in a position of independence from Him and not dependence upon Him. And as a result, we, it ends up in the realities of our lives us, with us doing crazy evil stuff. right? And some of that makes the news at night, and some of it doesn't. Some of it's very public, and some of it's very private. But we were all engaged in evil deeds. And for those who are in Christ, listen, verse 21 describes the position you were in prior to being reconciled to God. Prior to being reconciled to God, you were cut off, you were hostile in your mind towards Him, and you were doing all kinds of crazy things that went against His will. Do you ever remember who you once were? And the position that you stood in. Listen, for those of you who are not in Christ this morning, you've never placed your faith or confidence in Him, that is still your reality. You're cut off from God. You're hostile in your mind toward Him. He is your enemy. And you're doing evil deeds. Whether they make the nightly news or not. But it's not enough to remember who we once were because Paul goes on to say in verse 22, he says, literally translated, my translation says, he has now. If you look in the Greek, it literally says, but now. But now. What? He has reconciled you. You were once alienated, but now you've been reconciled. And we focused on that reconciliation quite a bit last week. What it is. Let me talk to you about the byproduct of it this week. See, oftentimes when we remember who we once were, that can either cause our heart to do one of two things. It can cause our heart to erupt in gratitude for the reconciling work of Christ. You ever been there before? Thought about who you once were in your sin? And thought about how grateful you are to God for reaching down and bringing a rescue to reconcile you. That can be one output of remembering who you once were. The other output of remembering who you once were at times can be despair and attack from the enemy. As he begins to fire arrows to try to destroy your faith. Right, do you remember, you remember that night? Do you remember that time? Do you remember those words? Do you remember those actions? 
as he begins to accuse and accuse and accuse and accuse. So you can have one of those two responses of gratitude or despair as you remember who you once were. Listen, one of those is healthy. The other is destructive. So let me talk to you a moment for a moment about how to respond to that destructive one. Listen, whenever the enemy comes to attack with his poisonous arrows, when your conscience is pricked by the memory of failure and sin, you need to say, but now. There's healing. When the enemy assaults you with a reminder of how unworthy you were, a simple cry of, yes, I was, but now. But now, he's reconciled me. When he insinuates that no one with the history so filled with failure, so filled with ingratitude, so filled with selfishness could possibly be a Christian, then you respond with a hearty, but now. So you fight this paralyzing power of the past and this fear of what may lie ahead. You strengthen your soul with this promise that now because of Christ and in Christ, you are reconciled and redeemed. You remember who you once were. And that doesn't give the enemy fuel to attack, but it gives you fuel to respond in gratitude and worship. And listen, if we're to remain steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel to hope in another gospel, we've got to remember who we once were and what God did in the but now to reconcile us. Second practice. And then we're done. Not only do you remember who you once were, but rejoice in who you will be. That's the after. That's the after, church. See, Jesus reconciles us, I said earlier, for a purpose, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. That word holy was often used throughout, is often used throughout the Bible to describe the nature of God. And to a degree, we can share in His holiness through our righteous, our righteous living and moral uprightness. And Jesus has reconciled us to present us as those who are morally upright as His offering to the Father. Blameless, ethically, without blemish, faultless, above reproach. Listen, without without accusation. Without accusation. Without the possibility of anyone accusing you in such a way that no one can accuse you of doing something that is wrong. So morally upright, blameless, and without accusation, He presents you to God. That's who you will be. And listen, that future hope always drives present perseverance. Always. Listen, I ran a marathon, as many of you know, several months ago. And three and a half miles in, I told you before that I tore my right calf. And so I ran the next 23 and a half miles on a flat tire, so to speak. Okay? But when I got to the finish line, okay, and I walked, I, I, I hobbled across the finish line. <laughs> and I walked through the chute. And I went down into the kind of post-race party. The first thing they had waiting for us there was an ice cream bar. 
hard, crispy chocolate on the outside, vanilla ice cream, soft and cold on the inside. And I walked through that line, and I got that ice cream bar, and I told Chase Randolph, who had run with me, I said, had I known that that ice cream bar was waiting for me at the finish, I would have run a little harder. <laughs> I would have run a little faster, even with a flat tire. Right? Because if I knew what was waiting for me there, the refreshment that it would have brought, it would have caused me to persevere even more throughout the course of that race because future hope always drives present perseverance. And I believe what Paul is talking about here, listen, here's the good news this morning, church. I don't think Paul's talking about our present reality in this passage. That he will present you holy and blameless and above reproach. He's not talking about your present reality, though that's true that we're progressively becoming more holy and conforming to the character of Christ. But I believe what he's talking about here is our future reality. Our future reality. That word blameless is used in Ephesians 5.27 of the church in its final state of perfection and glory. It's also used to describe the same thing in Jude 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before God. It's it's used in that futuristic tense. The other places that it shows up in the New Testament are in Hebrews 9.14 and 1 Peter 1.19, both of which are referring to the blamelessness of Christ Himself. So in this text, in Colossians 1, in Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 5, in Jude 24, we find this notion of being presented blameless and without reproach before God at the end of the age. This persuades me that Paul's referring to the absolute, sinless, holy, blameless condition we will be in presented to God by our Savior upon His return. And I want to tell you, this is encouragement for me, and I hope it's encouragement for you as a struggling Christian, because my family can tell you that I am not holy, I am not blameless, and I am not above reproach on most days, if not all. I know some of you are. I am not. (laughs) So it's encouragement for struggling Christians. Here's why. Let me see if I can show it to you at a human level and then take it up to the divine level. There is nothing like being able to stand before a friend or a co-worker or a parent or a spouse with a clean and clear conscience. There's nothing like it. Knowing that you've done nothing to wound or offend them. Knowing there is nothing that stands in the way of your knowing them or them knowing you. That everything is on the table. You've come clean about everything. Knowing that you have nothing to hide, nothing to conceal, nothing to cover up. That you're innocent of all charges. Upright in all your dealings with them. Knowing that even if someone did accuse you of wrong, that the charges would not stick. The grand jury could not issue an indictment because there would not be enough evidence. There's nothing like that feeling in the world. To know that your conscience is clear before someone that you can have intimacy with. And listen, no matter how much money or how little money you have, no matter how the home that you live in or the car that you drive, there's nothing more satisfying than a soul that is clear 
before another. To know and be known. Now, if that's the experience we have at the human level, how much more so will we experience that in the presence of God Himself? Listen, when Jesus takes our hand and He leads us before the throne of God and He presents us to the Father as holy and blameless and above reproach in the very presence of God, before God, that word literally is describing a face-to-face encounter before the face of God, the face that God hid from Moses whenever He passed by Him on the mountain and told Moses, you can't handle sin my face I'm just going to show you my backside glory and Moses comes down the mountain lit up from the backside glory of God that face that Moses could not see we will come face to face with as Jesus leads us there and instead of being consumed by his glory in our sinfulness we will be presented before God as one with whom there is no blemish blameless, above reproach, all on account of the work of Christ because He reconciled us to God through His body of flesh, through His life in our place, through His death in our place. He will take our hand and lead us before the Father. How much more so will the delight of our souls be in the presence of God in that state? Standing before God, clean and cleared of all charges. So if you're a struggling Christian this morning, you're like, man, some days, some days I feel like that holy peace might describe me. Most days I feel quite unholy. I have thoughts that run through my mind that I struggle to take captive in obedience to Jesus. I have desires that emerge in my heart that I struggle to restrain and order my loves properly. If that's you this morning, welcome to the club. It's the experience of every Christian in every generation who has ever lived. But the good news is that is not who you will always be. Because Jesus will present you one day. And if you want to remain steadfast today, then rejoice in who you will be as you remember who you were. It's a marathon, church. Run the race well. Remain steadfast by remembering and rejoicing. Let's pray together. Father, this morning... We thank you for your finished work at the cross. We thank you for your grace that preserves us, that we are able to persevere. But Father, may we never soften the warnings of Scripture. Perhaps this morning, that warning has pricked the heart of someone. And Father, if it has pricked their heart, I pray they would not try to pacify or ease their conscience, but they would run to You. 
that they would fire the defense attorney in their souls and they would cling to Christ in faith. Father, for those who struggle with accusations from their past, I pray that you would help them to respond today and all the days to come with a but now. Christ has reconciled me. He is sufficient for me. And may we rejoice in who we will be as those who will be presented before you because of the life-giving work of your Spirit and the sin-crushing work of your Son as those who are holy and blameless. May our hearts dwell on that truth. May we never grow tired or weary of hearing it. But may it arrest our hearts and capture us in a way so as to continue to conform our lives into the image of Christ and to bring us assurance when we fail because of your deep love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.